Good morning. It's a beautiful spring morning out there. This morning we're going to read from Genesis 37 again. I will start in verse 2 and proceed to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. 
they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. May God give us understanding of his word. Father, we thank you for your glorious work in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have so graciously provided everything we need to bring about our good and your glory. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together. We thank you that we have your spirit with us and among us to illuminate what you have revealed in your word. And we ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, we ask that you would turn our hearts so that we would love like you do. And I pray that our concern would be therefore for others and not for ourselves. And so as we gather this morning, I want to lift up to you those who are unable to be here this morning, those through illness or infirmity, are unable to attend, Lord, we lift them up to you and ask that you would bless them, that your spirit would be with them now, and that we would be with them through the week. Lord, for any here who have need, I pray that we would come to trust you as our perfect provider, our loving Father who withholds no good thing from his children. And again, may we work according to your will, providing loving one another. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. And I pray you would bless us now with understanding by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we began looking at the life of Jacob's sons last week, and there we introduced some of the major themes which will be developed through this entire section, which is about the next dozen chapters or so. It's all one story. It really doesn't break up very well. Uh, It has these major themes that go all the way through. And so in order to better understand the narrative as we work through it, we jumped to the end of the story where Joseph announces that everything that had happened to him was really the sovereign work of God to preserve his people. And so he says, Genesis 45, 7 to 8, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so we left 
off last week after verse 17 where Joseph was found wandering the fields looking for his brothers and just happened to randomly chance upon a man who was able to direct him to them. Between the dreams at the beginning of this chapter and Joseph's statements at the end, we have this long narrative just full of seemingly coincidental encounters and human decisions that all serve the purposes of God as announced in the dreams. And so there's a soft word for the reality of God's sovereignty, and that is providence. We can very easily talk about God's providence. He's working behind the scenes. He's working things out. This is God causing things to work out according to his purposes through and in spite of all human agency and activity and through all the coincidental occasions so that things ultimately work out for good. We're comfortable with providence. But the dreams that begin the narrative and these final statements of Joseph provide a hard word for this same reality, the more difficult and offensive biblical doctrine of predestination. You see, the dreams announce that God wasn't just trying his best all along. The dreams announce that God wasn't just putting his will behind theirs and saying, hey, look, I'm going to try my best to make this work out for you. The dreams announce that God has determined everything before they take place. And as with all biblical prophecies, they announce that God is not merely doing his best to bless and bring about good for those he has chosen, but that he has it all quite firmly in his grip. It is a harder doctrine to accept it, and an even harder one to comprehend. But the dreams and the final statements insist that God is not merely working what good he can in the face of overwhelming evil, but that he is certain to bring about all of this. Biblical prophecy, such as Joseph's dreams, make it clear that the outcome is already certain and is certainly within the Lord's ability to accomplish. And so we saw the same thing expressed in Genesis 15, 13 to 16, when the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at this time, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we see that God has already announced to Abraham what is taking place here in the Joseph narrative, that Israel would come to Egypt and there would be afflicted for 400 years. He had even determined at that time, hundreds of years before, which generation would re-enter the promised land at the exact moment of his timing to coincide with his judgment of the evil Amorite tribes, which they would dispossess. So all of this is working out exactly according to God's purpose, and he's laying things out hundreds of years in advance, and you can think in terms of human decision, any significant decision along the way would totally change the plan. 
You think of like the butterfly effect and just the way that if at any point any of these people would decide other than the way God had predicted that they would and determined that things would go, the whole thing would be thrown out of whack. But God there hundreds of years in advance is telling Abraham exactly how this is going to work out. The same thing happens with Moses where he even prophesies to the people of Israel that they will not continue to obey. And God will send them into exile. And then hundreds of years later, he he will pull them back out of exile and restore them to the land. God has this all firmly in his grip. And this is what we see here. And so the biblical narrative does does not allow us to stick with the soft word that God is merely attempting to work things out for good. It demands recognition that it couldn't possibly work out any other way. Isaiah 46, second part of verse 9 and verse 10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is who God claims He is. He claims to have the authority to declare the beginning from the end and say exactly what's going to take place, and his counsel shall stand. He will accomplish all of his purpose. We saw this in the book of John as Jesus continues to make claims that everything is going according to plan, that none of the rejection that he received, none of the the failure of Israel to accept him was something that he was just unable to accomplish what he was trying to do, but that he was certainly accomplishing everything that the Father had given him to do. And so church, you know, I, I am merely human and unable to suss out all the purposes of God in our context right now, but I feel strongly that God is calling us to repentance for our sinful anxiety and worry. I've seen this just in, in the passages that God has brought us to. In Leighton's sermon a couple of weeks ago, we're seeing this again in Genesis, this idea of God's sovereignty. And God is kindly and gently reminding us this morning that He is sovereignly has all things firmly in His grasp so that we may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And Romans 5, 3 to 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there you go. I've put the challenge and the charge at the beginning of the message uh, before the exposition uh, so that we can trace the mighty work of God through every circumstance and action in the narrative and so be encouraged in this way. God is in control. And so our anxiety and worry is, is foolish and sinful. So Genesis 37, 18, we'll pick up in the middle of the chapter. They saw him, Joseph, from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. We saw last week. The brothers immediately understood the meaning of Joseph's dreams, but instead of rejoicing with him at how God had favored their family, they hated him for it and plotted to prevent the dreams from being fulfilled. The unique robe Joseph wore allows them to identify him from far off. They see him coming. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It's not the kind of robe you wear to work as a shepherd. 
an ornamental robe with long sleeves. But uh, as we learn, Joseph isn't coming to help with the labor. The robe signifies his new position as management. Uh, Jacob has chosen Joseph to rule over his brothers. And then it's God's choice to make Joseph a ruler, which is announced in the dreams, that stirs the brothers' hatred into a murderous plot. They, they reason the dreams can't come true if he's dead. And so the brothers violently oppose the dream, and it seems to be defeated at the end of the chapter. Jacob believes the dreamer is dead, and the brothers believe that the threat of the dream has been removed. But every attempt to kill the dream only moves the dream forward. In fact, it is reliant on the attempt to kill the dream by which God works his perfect will. You see, people can oppose God. It's not as though there's no free will. It's not as though humans aren't making choices. They make a choice to oppose the work of God. But our God is so powerful, so mighty, so omniscient, that his whole plan relies on the fact that they are going to oppose his purpose, and by opposing his purpose, they serve it. We see this happen all the way through Scripture in the way the devil works. The devil is nasty, hates God, wants to, to take us out, seeks who he can devour, and yet everything he does is exactly ordained by God that no matter what he does, and even knowing this, can't get out of this uh, trap where everything he does serves God per- God's purposes. And so also with us. And so far from preventing Joseph's dreams, the brothers actually become the agents of fulfilling it. A God that could only work through good choices and righteous behavior would be severely limited in our sinful world. But in this chapter, God sovereignly works through Jacob's bad parenting and through the the brothers' wicked hatred, along with several seemingly random encounters, including with the slave trade. And in fact, the only element we initially think of being the work of God, the dreams, becomes the impetus for the brothers' murderous response. It's what really gets them fired up. Moving on, verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him here or into this pit here in the sorry, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And so Reuben which we've seen earlier in this, is is Jacob's eldest son, and by all cultural norms should have been the recipient of both a double blessing of inheritance and the right of rulership over the family after his father's death. It hasn't been made explicit yet at this point in the story, but both God and Jacob, his father, have rejected Reuben as the next tribal leader in Israel. His blessing will go to Joseph, And the rulership will go to the tribe of Judah. But here, Reuben is the oldest, and as such, would be the one that was answerable to his father for the well-being of his beloved son, Joseph. And it's, it's doubtful here that Reuben was genuinely concerned for him, as he is included among those who hated him. But it is far more likely that he comes to Joseph's defense in order to regain the favor of his father. We, we see that his concern is not for Joseph, but for himself in verse 30, where upon finding that Joseph had been sold, his response is, 
the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? You know, he's like, what's going to happen to me? And so this dismay reflects his sense that as the oldest, he is the one ultimately responsible for Joseph's safety. So much for regaining Jacob's favor by rescuing his favorite boy. And so we, we see that Reuben desires to be the leader and savior for Joseph, that Joseph will finally be to his brothers. See, this is what, what Je- Reuben desires, is to be what Jake, uh, Joseph will ultimately be in the one who will lead and save. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. One of the the major themes from the generation of Jacob's sons is the transformation which God produces in his people. We've seen right from Abraham that a faithful God will eventually create for himself a faithful people. And this is something that the Bible prophesies many times that Jesus will return for his spotless bride. And so God is, is doing a work in producing a faithful people, and it's quite interesting as we look at the Joseph story. It is not Joseph who is progressively sanctified. Joseph is, is obedient and faithful throughout the story. But it is the brothers, these wicked brothers, who are progressively sanctified because of God's covenant love. And so it is their early wickedness that is highlighted here, as they strip their brother, dump him down into an empty cistern without even water to drink, and then callously eat a meal up above. This will be contrasted later when their next meal in Joseph's presence will be with Joseph at the head of the table. What is ironic here is that they have just planned to say that an evil beast had devoured Joseph, and after they attacked him, they sat down to eat. And so the text is, is making it clear which evil beasts attacked Joseph. That they're, when they say he was taken by evil beasts, this won't exactly be a lie. They just don't realize that they're talking about themselves. We will find out later that Joseph pleaded for mercy from the empty cistern. But for now, the text passes over his suffering to focus on the wickedness of the brothers. Continuing verse 25, and they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Here, the slavers are identified as both Midianites and Ishmaelites, Uh, which by this time in history had come to be interchangeable names despite having different biblical lineages. And so this was just a name for a northern Arab caravaner. They just happened to pass by before the brothers left Joseph to die in the pit, which then would have allowed Reuben to go back and rescue him to their father. So Reuben's plan is foiled. 
Again, we see the providence of God at work, but is not to help with Joseph's rescue, but instead it is to make sure he is not rescued. This time, the providence of God foils Reuben's plans to save Joseph from his captivity. And so, although Reuben was trying to be the responsible older brother, he is depicted as a failed leader. And then Judah takes the stage, and he emerges as a leader among the brothers. It's significant because three times in the Joseph story, Judah shows up, and he always, all three times, successfully persuades all the others to do whatever he suggests, despite the fact that his suggestions are not always commendable. And each time, Judah speaks, it's longer than the previous speech and, and uh, far more decent. So, so we can trace a clear improvement all the way through this story of Judah's behavior. Judah is being sanctified. We talked last week about the importance of Judah being the one that God would preserve to be the ancestor of King David and then Jesus. But the, here, Judah is taking the lead. Now, he leads the brothers to commit a crime, which was considered a capital offense in that culture. And it's his brother that they sell into slavery. The, the height of the irony here is that Judah says, Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And then turns around to sell Joseph, their own flesh, into slavery and probable death. Suffice to say... And we're going to really see this further expressed in the following chapter. Judah was not at this time faithful to the covenant family and lived in an ungodly manner. So this is why his salvation and transformation are so amazing to see in this story. So Judah's kind of the other main, main character because what happens to Judah is of utmost importance in this story. So he keeps on coming up. Each time is growing, being transformed by God through God's faithfulness to this family. So the brothers sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver, which was the average price for a male slave in Babylon during the early 2nd millennium B.C. And so this, this price uh, we can trace as it's increased in ancient history. So it fits with the timing of the final edit of Genesis sometime after David was king in Israel. And we'll come back to the 20 pieces of silver. Following along now, verse 31 Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Another theme we saw introduced last week, but what we see now here is that although God is merciful and gracious with those he has chosen for himself, there remains serious consequence for sin. Now, Reuben was unable to rescue Joseph, and so now they need some sort of excuse so they won't be punished, and they choose to deceive their father. And so the the theme of deception that was so prevalent in the Jacob and Esau narrative returns with a vengeance here as uh, Jacob, the deceiver, 
is deceived in the same way by his sons. In God's sovereign justice, he disciplines his own by the consequences of their evil deeds, even as he uses this discipline to preserve them from more severe and eternal consequences. Jacob had deceived his father with a goat and a cloak, so now his own sons deceive him with a goat and a cloak. We say cloak and dagger, they were cloak and goat, and they trick each other with a cloak and a goat. It is what we call talionic justice. Jacob receives his own evil in kind, so that there's no mistaking that this ironic discipline is from God. So this is why it's so just spot on, right? Jacob is a deceiver. He deceives with a goat and a cloak. Now he's being deceived in the exact same manner to show that this is a discipline from God. And this theme is so important lest we think that God's sovereignty will protect us from all of the consequences of sin and that our choices don't matter. Yes, we can talk about God being sovereign and working all things according to His will, and sometimes the immediate response is the very foolish and faulty logic that says, oh, then what we do doesn't matter at all. It's like, no, sit back down. You You don't know what you're talking about. God bestows great mercy upon His people. But that does not mean he will not sanctify them through loving discipline. So it's clear that Jacob's deceitful and grasping nature could not upset God's plan for his life. It's not as though Jacob's sin could stop God from accomplishing his purposes. But the example that he set for his family had led to this point of resigning himself to go down to his grave in mourning over his lost son. The consequences of sin in his life will cause Jacob to later refer to the days and years of his life, Genesis 47, 9, as few and evil. So we need to see this. Jacob is chosen by God, rescued by God. Everything God does works out for his good and God's glory, but they do suffer the consequences of their choices. Whenever the Bible speaks of predestination, and it does several times, It also speaks of moral responsibility and the necessity of right action. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. And so the clearest teachings in the Bible on predestination, such as Romans 9, it's immediately followed by Romans 10. We'll read Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? I love this because right on the heels of learning that God will effectively call and save those he has chosen, we are told that they will not come to faith unless someone carries out the great commission given to all of Christ's disciples and proclaims the good news to them. So I've heard it said dozens of times that if God has determined the outcome of all things, then what we do doesn't even matter. To which, again, the answer is your logic is fallible and faulty. Come back to the Word of God. If the Word of God says God is sovereign and in control of all things and declares the beginning from the end and then also tells you that you're responsible for your activity, then let's believe that. You know, your your logic is going to take you in some different directions. We need to keep coming back to what the Word of God actually says. And every time that the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God, it is also paired with this idea that what we do really does matter, and there will be consequences. 
Now I can't save myself. I can't sow to the point in which, where I would reap eternal life. I can only trust that Christ has sown, and I will reap eternal life in Him. But that doesn't mean that the things that I do, the sins that I commit, will not affect me, my family, my community. And so this idea, well, if God's in control, let's just give up. Let's just wait to see what happens. Let's just wait and see how God works things out. This is foolishness. Our attitudes matter. Our choices matter. And we bear the responsibility and consequences of them both. But God, in His glorious, sovereign will, is turning all things into good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We have one final verse, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The providence of God will bring Joseph to and through trials of many kinds. He will experience many years of hardship in slavery and the loneliness of separation from his entire family. Later, the prophets would speak of one like Joseph, a suffering servant who would accomplish God's purposes through faithful obedience despite persecution and distress. Joseph would not be the only one rejected by his brothers and sold for the price of a slave in order to rescue his people. Jesus was sold by Judas for 30 shekels, uh, the price of a slave in his time. Rejected by his brothers, denied by his disciples, and condemned by his own people, all, Acts 2.23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Plan number one, God's plan from before the foundations of the earth was that Jesus would suffer and die on your behalf. And so that is not that Adam and Eve were not held accountable for their activity, but that God knew exactly how things would work out all the way along. And whenever it didn't serve his purposes, he changed it. And whenever it did, he allows it to go forward. In his providential work on our behalf, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief but ultimately in order to prosper his hand. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Like Joseph's brothers, we are saved by the suffering one who calls each to take up our own cross to follow him in a life that is characterized by persecution suffering, and self-denial. But we can only, church, live in a manner worthy of this call when we have hope in the one, Ephesians 1.11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is, we can't actually trust God and be motivated to live according to his commands for us Unless we understand this, that he is perfectly in control and that all things will ultimately work out to be what he has decided. No one can resist his will. Even all opposition to his plan ends up serving his purposes. And so this means, church, that all, like I said at the beginning, all anxiety, all worry is sinful and pointless. It is a failure to believe God for who he says he is. 
It's failure to understand that the very circumstances that you are suffering right now are exactly what God is using to perfectly place you in a position for blessing, prosperity, and every good thing that God has for you. It means that that most difficult person in your life is the agent of God. That person that you have felt has held you back and pushed you down, they have actually done the work of God. Not that they're without sin, not that they won't be judged, not that God won't take vengeance on your behalf, but that God is perfectly working out all things for your good, even the evil acts of brothers who hate and fathers who show favoritism. Even the evil acts of slave traders are all serving the purposes of our God. And this is how we can rejoice in trials of many kinds. Because even those who are trying their very best to resist the will of our God are only serving His purposes. Apply this to our leaders, our political leaders. Apply this to to any area of our life where we are struggling and, and, and feel anxiety and worry about what's happening. God is in control. God has allowed these circumstances to exactly work things out for the best good and to save as many as He wills. This is the work of our God. So I want to leave us, as I read 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest did it in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, your good gift to us is so far beyond anything we can think or imagine. We cannot comprehend your goodness and what you have planned for us. We see a shadow of the things to come, pictures of of heavenly cities and golden streets and thrones and crowns and rods of rule. But God, only you truly know the goodness that you have extended to us. Such goodness that there is none better such a treasure that we could not even imagine a better one. And Lord, this is all freely granted to us through the work of your Son, so that no one can boast in your presence, but that we would all praise you 
for what we have received that we could never have earned. And so, Lord, I pray for those this morning who are habitually sinning with anxiety and worry as you command us not to. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts and minds by your word, that your spirit would illuminate to us what it is you are teaching through your word this morning, that you would show us your iron grip on us, your perfect control of all things, and that in every trial, in every circumstance, in every hardship, we would rejoice, glorify you, and give you praise. We ask this ultimately to glorify Christ Jesus in our lives. Glorify your name among us, we pray. Amen.